Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. We have with us the men of the hour, the men who are going to give us the breakdown, the geopolitical, geoeconomic play-by-play. We have Tim Kirby. He is right live from Russia. We have the one and only Monsieur Matthew Eret from Canada, oh. Great White North. Alex Craner from Monaco, uh, from the great, beautiful place of Monaco. Uh, there's lots going on. We might even have uh, Joaquin Flores join us. Uh, I don't know where in the world Joaquin is currently, but uh, he could be possibly joining us as well. So we're just going to go live with this. Gentlemen, welcome. Wow. I mean, before we went live, Tim and I were just talking with CJ, and Tim mentioned that this is probably the greatest uh, political event of our lifetimes, man. I, I, I have to agree yeah. with that. Well, it's the biggest. I mean, this is a this is a major shift. This is uh, some uh, people are already writing that this is really that moment when that whole like monopolar world order, the Pax Americana, which it doesn't have much 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 Pax in it after uh, the Cold War was over. Uh, that phase has sort of officially come to an end. So uh, it's Wax uh, Americana now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a different ball game now. Uh, the future is now a little bit uncertain and a little bit interesting. And uh, although I can't say one thing, it'll probably be much more human. Uh, yes. and uh, have less hate in it. So that's nice. Yes, that's a good thing. Yeah, Alex, what do you think? The last 24 hours. Well, I think hours. that's uh, it, what, it, what it seems to me is that we've gone from some 70 years of Pax Americana yeah. into back into 19th century geopolitics. Mm. So it's going to be extremely interesting, and it's going to be extremely disruptive initially. Yes. So we'll see what happens. Monsieur Eret, what's your take, Matthew? Yeah, I, I think there's something to what, what uh, Alex, you just said. Um, and a, it's an irony that in the 19th century, uh, the force globally, uh, the forces of the world around the various spheres of influence competing for uh, hegemony were either these hereditary structures of empire, a French, you know, the remnants of the Habsburgs, the uh, the British um, and and a few others. Um, and then you had the Americans at that time representing a very different tradition than the America that we know of today, um, representing that more multipolar win-win type of orientation that valued long-term thinking, the emission of productive state credit for large-scale projects that uh, benefited human life. And uh, and today, it's it's a bit of an irony of history that it is Eurasia, it is Russia, it is China, it is India, it is these other countries representing these ancient civilizational forces who are today representing that win-win orientation, which is very anti-Darwinian, is very much based on a, an anti-materialist, anti-monetarist way of, of thinking about our self-interest, not to say that money doesn't have value, but the idea of self-interest is tied to what are you creating, how are you transforming the system for the better of future generations, which is what we used to have. And today we've lost that sensibility, especially since the death of JFK. And since we really drank this, this poison Kool-Aid for the, the past, what, 60, 70 years of uh, this belief in Anglo-American hegemony. 
and consumerism. So now I think, you know, we're paying the piper. We're coming to the point now where the system has reached beyond the breaking point. Something's got to give, I think, in the at some point. I don't know how long you could have coexisting on the earth these two opposing worldviews, how to organize society. But the break is now happening. It's underway. And a decision is going to be made in the coming months, maybe years. I don't really know. It's tough to talk about. Uh, it's going to get interesting, though, like Tim said. Yeah. And I just like to point out to you, meant the, the break between two major sides. I mean, uh, a few smaller countries have already sort of sided with Russia, but China said Ukraine started it. Yeah. So China's already definitely put their chips down and we know on which side. So the break is happening right now. Huge. Mm -hmm. uh, India recognized uh, the breakaway provinces. So has Syria. So has Iran. So has any country that matters on this global scale that is, um, uh, uh, that is, that is uh, you know, coming against this uh, power structure. Oh, Joaquin. No, I, I don't see Joaquin in here. Unless, of course, there's a... Oh, there he is. Oh. Oh, Joaquin! Hey! hey. <laughs> What's up, buddy? Hopefully his audio is working. Joaquin, could you hear us? Uh, uh, hmm. Well, hold on. Uh, well, let me go. Do a private chat with him. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, uh, I mean, all the countries that matter have responded to, uh, to this thing. And I, I think this is an end of the, uh, of the continued power structure. Uh, CJ, what do you think, man? No, I mean, I'm more along the lines of, uh, for the ride today. Uh, I think the reformation of the world order is taking place and, um, and it's and it's a good thing. It's it's long overdue, um, even dating back to the Middle East when you looked at all the failed policies there. And uh, now it's come full circle where people are realizing that truly, indeed, the emperor not only has no clothes, but has no brain either. Absolutely. Joaquin, can you hear us? Yes, I can. I'm coming in good. Perfect. Joaquin, lots have happened. 24 hours have been absolutely momentous. We are witnessing the Suez moment of the unipolar world as they are basically driven back into the doldrums of, 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 of obsoleteness and irrelevance. What are your, what's your take on this incredible, incredible string of events? After, uh, after Putin met with uh, Macron, uh, and, and once they sort of passed certain thresholds, certain keywords, uh, security is a big one. Uh, once that was firmed up and it looked like Europe is not ready to uh, get into a, a conflict over this. Uh, that was a big sign uh, that what we saw would go down as we've seen it. And then once NATO announced uh, that there would be no closure of the uh, of the uh, canal of the Bosphorus uh, of the uh, uh, Strait of Marmara, then we we could see that you know that's this was going to go generally unopposed. So uh, I don't look at the sanctions as being a very big deal. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was um, it's, it's been a pretty smooth so far. Uh, uh, if I may add um, one other thing that's very important is that over the last year, I've been sort of monitoring what, uh, you know, the West has been saying to the Ukrainians. And uh, there have been big visits to Kiev, especially by um, Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin. And he made this very, you know, powerful and passionate speech. You know, the Russians are bad, this, that, and the other. We support our allies. But uh, we're going to support you from far away. We're just going to give you stuff. And Biden sort of reaffirmed that. And over and over again, to be honest, really 
uh, NATO uses some word games to essentially sound impressive and like they're really committed to Ukraine while not really committing anything than giving them old junk from the military surplus pile. So that's that's a big point. Number two, probably the most important thing that was of words that were put into the air that may have actually caused Russia to um, move in was about, a, I think it was a week ago, Zelensky said that they really needed to get atomic weapons. Uh, that was probably the real, like, that... real sealer. You know, where they were just like, oh, okay, no, it's done, it's <laughs> over, <laughs> go. Uh, so, exactly. yeah, no, seriously, the tweet's out there. Uh, oh, if I can find it. No, I saw, I saw it last night. I was up till 3 in the oh. morning watching the developments <laughs> and watching the uh, Ukrainian air defense missiles and the, the, the air defense network go down in about two hours mm. and have yeah. their entire air force's back broken very quickly. It was oh, yeah. incredible to witness, and and, uh, and Zelensky literally that was, I, I agree with you. that's what sealed the deal, saying that yeah. uh, we're going to put uh, nuclear weapons in Ukraine. The dumbest possible thing the comedian who plays a president can say. Yeah, 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 yeah. and and V's correct for those who might not know, uh, Zelensky was a professional comedian. He was sort of like a Seinfeld type of uh, character uh in various different movies so uh yeah and, and the last role he was playing the president of ukraine, of ukraine. <laughs> yeah well that's the whole you thing is like really the, the whole problem with the situation is that the really of um parts of the former soviet union if there's any fake country it's the ukraine what? because the ukrainian language is just sort of like a forced bastardization of russian uh, this uh, sort of a bizarre um, uh, fake neo-Nazi regime that uh, just tries to pick on other people that are essentially their ethnic group. It's just everything about this whole situation is ultimately fake. And the Ukrainian army wound up being fake because Russian intelligence revealed recently that the Ukrainians internally did this sort of like survey, an anonymous survey of their soldiers, and 80% of them said they were unwilling to fight. So not surprisingly, when Russia went in through the borders, all the border guards just threw down their guns. Most of the military said, OK, that isn't to say that necessarily uh, all the Ukrainian military is secretly uh, passionate about Russia. Probably a significant percent of them are. But it's just to say that uh, no one is willing to die for what's essentially a fake country with a fake existence led by a fake president. Very well said. Uh, Joaquin, your thoughts? Yeah, I'll buy. I'll buy. Um, my, my, you know, my view is is that uh, that going back to 2014, that the U.S. had somebody else in mind, even in Poroshenko. Mm. I think that Poroshenko was a compromised candidate who agreed from the beginning not to touch Crimea. Uh, all his businesses in Russia, he's got Russian chocolates. They're not really sold in Europe because you know the EU doesn't allow. Uh, Poroshenko stuff to circulate too well, but in Russia, they're very popular. So he's got a lot of his money in Russian banks and all his businesses in Russia. He's the chocolate king of Russia, but he's Ukrainian. So yeah. you have Russian chocolate and it's like a lot of things on, on, on him. Then, then you move to the next phase. You have, you have Trump and you have, and you have Putin, and then you have the, the coming to get coming in with Zelensky uh, as a character. He's hilarious. I'm not a fan of, of his personal biography. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't like the things that he is forced to say, but I don't think I think that the idea was to have a, a, a leader of the country who was not an oligarch himself that would be sort of a, that didn't have any legitimate basis for his own aspirations for power. Like you look at everyone going, you know, uh, Yanukovych, uh, you go back to, you know, everyone going past was 
some oligarch or other that had billions and billions and billions of, of dollars. These, that's what Ukraine's been been led by led by in this Kuchmaist uh, regime going back to the early 90s, right? And especially so after the Orange Revolution, yeah. right, uh, 13 years ago or so. So you have, uh, or more. So you have now, <clears throat> I, I think that Zelensky was a compromised candidate. I, so I think when he said stupid things like, we want nuclear weapons, I'm almost thinking now, because I like to be honest with about what I think, and I don't toe the party line, right? I think that, that, that Zelensky did that as part of like the things that he might say to help Russians aims, because that was part of the justification of moving in. When you talk about the OSCE, talk about Helsinki, talk about security, the status of deteriorating security. So when you say crazy things like we want to join NATO, even though NATO hasn't invited them to join, or when you say crazy things like we want nuclear, we want to tear up our agreement to be non-nuclear, even though they don't possess nuclear weapons. That's just crazy stuff that isn't going to materialize, in my view, but it provides the just the perfect pretext to do these things. So uh, I actually, I, I'm not against Zelensky. I think that he's, you know, just a puppet. But I think when you look at people like Akhmatov and other oligarchs who kind of are behind Zelensky, you right. can see that these are people that at some point were supporting rebels. Okay. So at some point, some of these oligarchs were supporting rebels in in the uh, DPR, and then they got behind Zelensky. So with, that's just how I kind of, that's how my fucking brain works. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I see the world. Well, no, that's, a, that's an interesting hypothesis. I, I hadn't uh, uh, thought about it that way, but it, it does make a certain amount of sense the way, as I hear you speak as a, as a plausible hypothesis, because I mean, Zelensky did come in as sort of the, you know, as a Jewish guy in a Nazi infested uh, situation uh, <laughs> coming in as a non-establishment sort of peace candidate in a sense. And people definitely didn't want that was the basis upon which his landslide victory occurred was that he was not going to be this antagonistic warmonger. Um, we, we've seen the loss of power of a lot of the, the higher level uh, Nazi officials like Andre uh, Perubi um, would become the, you know, the head of the head speaker. Of the, I mean, the, he was a really important character who co-founded what became Svoboda. Um, and was a big integrator of the Azovs into the defense forces as this weird quasi thing. So, I mean, the fact that Zelensky came in on that basis and has been put in a very difficult position between forces that have wanted to continue to utilize uh, Ukraine as a tool to instigate a confrontation uh, with Russia. And, and you know, um, and, and it's full of all sorts of very a lot of people who really don't like Jews. And are more than willing to uh, eliminate him if he gets a little bit too out of control. That that's it's it's possible that he might have done something that might have actually intentionally provoked a response uh, that might have been a positive scenario coming out of what we've seen now in the past forty eight hours or twenty four hours. So hmm, it's interesting. Well, there's also the uh, sort of theory that perhaps uh, when uh, Washington released its uh, answer to Russians' demands in secret, that perhaps uh, what we're seeing right now might be a lot of p political theater. Uh, because remember, the uh, twerps at CNN, when they drew up all those fancy maps of what a Russian invasion of the Ukraine would look like, they were essentially what's good drawings of what's happening now. So if uh, some 23-year-old uh, bachelor degree uh, hipsters living in uh, wherever, New York, could figure it out, uh, then uh, essentially uh, the entire U.S. military staff should have been able to see this coming. Uh, all the steps are very predictable, yet really nothing is done. And again, the punishments are all very going to be very abstract. It's sanctions. It's 
well, we want to launch a hacker attack. Uh, apparently, the Kremlin website was down for 10 minutes. That's a major victory. Uh, you see what I mean? So uh, there, there could be to an extent that maybe what we're seeing here was actually sort of signed off on. Oh, yeah. Perhaps. Definitely. Alex, what's your take? Well, I don't know. I'm, I have to say I'm a little bit surprised. I had the impression that Russians were not going to rock the boat because I I thought they were in a much better position to wait out the West because, you know, they have uh, they have all the cards in their, on their sides. Okay. So, you know, they, uh, the cutting of Nord Stream 2. Yeah. What's going to happen? Europe's going to find itself in a huge energy crisis, an energy crisis that could bring down the world economy. Yeah. Um, Not to mention food crisis. The, what occurs also is the, is the problem with fertilizer in Europe right now. It's a big issue. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 it's across the board. You, you, uh, Russia is now num- world's number one exporter of wheat. It's not just oil and gas. Right. Um, Europe, the situation with, with natural gas is so dramatic that we might end up going into the next winter with no storage at all. Hmm. And um, God only knows what that's going to do to the, to the price. Of, of natural gas and of oil. Um, the short-sightedness of Western policymakers is just breathtaking because they're punishing Russia with sanctions, but these sanctions are going to boomerang a boomerang hundred times over to the West because Russia is now number one oil exporter to the United States. And European markets depend on Russia for over 40% of its natural gas requirements, which is not just people heating their homes, like half of German households depend on Russian gas for, for heating themselves during the winter. It's also uh, the industry. Like a few months ago, the last zinc refiner in France shut down because the price of natural gas was too high. And that was back in December. It's only getting worse. Hmm. And so you're, you're exploding the prices of Russian exports as a punishment to Russia. So I, you know, the, the, the whole thing is, is absolutely surreal. Another reason why I thought the Russians were going to wait out the West is because the West is uh, on the verge of collapse, um, you know, the United States has 133% debt to GDP. Uh, Britain is over over 100%. Italy is over 100%, 150 uh, Canada, Japan. Russia is at 18%. They can play this game for another 10, 15 years. Yeah. They can, you know... What's, what, what are the sanctions going to do? They're going to cut off uh, advanced chips. So what? They're going to buy it from smugglers. It's, it's, it's been done before. Oh, they're, so they're going to buy it from China. China. I mean, two plus. Yeah, Sorry? Uh, I said they're going to buy it from China. China's already closing in on four <laughs> and three nanometer chips already. For example, but I mean like toothless sanctions that uh, – not even in the long term, already in the medium term, actually put Russia in a much, much stronger position. 
So it's it's like it's like the West is going for the broke, but with a busted flash. Mm. So flush. So I'm 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 surprised because I I I didn't really expect that Russia was going to go hard. And at the same time, I know that uh, Russian leadership has done none of this impulsively. That everything has been war games very thoroughly and prepared way in advance. So if they went ahead with this then their cost-benefit calculus must have suggested that this is clearly the better way to go. Bingo. So, uh, you know, I I didn't predict this right, so now I'm a little bit, what's what's really going to happen now? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would, if I may. Go ahead, Olkin. Uh, I would suggest, so I think Alex's logic is spot on, and I and I was exactly in the same position and I was very surprised at what we saw in the last 24 hours. And I came to very similar conclusions that, and it's made me actually sort of remember that we are in the middle of the Great Reset. It made me remember that we are in the middle of this collapse. And so maybe this is what the logic bears out, that of course these decisions are never made impulsively. And I, and I think then that this means that the past eight years that Russia has been waiting this out, and that maybe this is the point that they see the NATO alliance at its weakest. And this is the point that they see, you know, whatever the parabola, the zenith, whatever, that that is where the, that this is the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, well very said. possible. Well, uh, one thing I'd like to mention, uh, uh, I've sort of talked to some of you guys about this before, but I'll be real quick, is about... Um, the issue with uh, uh, Russia's resources. Now, one of the big things about expanding into the uh, south and east of Ukraine is that on this planet we live on, there's only three places that can feed the entire world. That's the Midwest where I'm from. Uh, go Browns. If you can see it, go Browns, Midwest power. <laughs> uh, then there's uh, the fields of Argentina and there's essentially uh, the Ukraine and uh, some of the south of Russia. And since the end of the Cold War, really uh, five-sixths of these three locations, you know, because half of it remained in Russia, were really under the control of the United States. And uh, it made essentially food could be used as a weapon against certain countries, especially those like China and India, which have some problems. Uh, in fact, <laughs> one of the major exports of, of uh, Russia to China is oil, cooking oil, because they don't have enough. All right. So this is a, a major change in the fact that uh, now – there's really no way that the West, the global hegemon, could use starvation as a weapon because the Russians will be able to utilize all this new territory to produce uh, an insane amount of food, enough food to serve uh, all of humanity, if need be. Well, not only that, but uh, Argentina has been getting uppity as well against the empire. Uh, because I don't know if you noticed, but as this, as this whole mess um, started to whip up in, just before the... Um, the Olympics in Beijing, the uh, the Argentinian president went to visit Putin. And then from Moscow, he flew to Beijing, where he visited with uh, Xi Jinping. Mm. And uh, they had very friendly meetings. And one of the developments that came on the back of uh, his meeting in China was that the Chinese officially reaffirmed their support for Argentina's claim uh, over the Fal Falkland Islands. So this is another blow that's going to come from out of left field in the near future to the to the British, that they might have to fight for the Falkland Islands again, except this time around, I think that the Argentinians are going to be better prepared. So that big giant breadbasket 
is no longer as susceptible to uh, being subservient to the empire anymore. So that's going to be very interesting. But I wanted to get back to the point that Joachim made moments ago. He raised the, the issue of um, the Great Reset, because this crisis is very, very related to the Great Reset. And one of the things uh, that one of the one of the key um, points about the Great Reset is that we are supposed to move away from hydrocarbons to uh, renewable energy sources. And I don't know if you guys remember, but in uh, 16th November, Boris Johnson gave a speech. Um, and indirectly, he addressed the European leaders and he prepared them that soon the choice will come uh, between mainlining ever more Russian uh, hydrocarbons in giant new pipelines. I'm, I'm very close to quoting him exactly. This is, this is what he said. Or standing up for democracy and freedom in Ukraine. And there we are. Now this choice has been made. Nord Stream 2 has been put on ice. And just today... The same Boris Johnson gave a short speech regarding the, the events in Ukraine. And the speech was four or five minutes long, not terribly coherent, all of it, uh, as every Western leader is, is, is repeating these days. But he managed to slip in that collectively the West must make an effort to make themselves uh, independent of Russian energy sources. So it seems that an underlying, an underlying conflict in all of this is that the West wants to be uh, fully independent of uh, Russian energy. And so we can look forward to the future of solar and wind power, whatever that's going to do. <laughs> yeah. I, can I say something on that? The, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, um, I think that that's really important, this, this ideology that underlies the Great Reset. And a lot of people try to make their analysis geopolitically without considering the ideology of the Great Reset um, as in any way causal or important in all of this. And it's just the most incompetent thing to do um, since it's all this is everything is being driven by this this intention to essentially what is the Great Reset? It's get rid of nation states um, impose new values onto the entire system under a giant collective behavioral modification to wire society towards valuing depopulation or activities economically that constrict your ability to sustain your, your people's lives. You know, and this is what if you if you look at uh, Green New Dealers strewn throughout the technocratic uh, wannabe elites of Europe, uh, this is what they're talking about. Timmermans saying, you know, that the, uh, the vice president of the European Commission is saying that uh, the, the big problem of the energy crisis being suffered by Europe right now is that we didn't do the Green New Deal fast enough. It should have been five years earlier. And if it were, we would not even need Russian oil today. We could have lower energy costs. And it's like, you're lying. He knows he's lying. They know that the these qualities of energy sources provably reduce your ability to power your industries, to power your, your agro-industrial needs to sustain life. They know that. Their desire, their, their intention has always been to create that contraction um, and, and reduce the population. And I would just say that if you look at it, we're sort of, the timeline's all screwy right now because this entire new world order thing that, I mean, the World Economic Forum was created in 1971, right? That was when you had the floating of the US dollar, the creation of a new type of 
system of values around uh, a consumer cult model instead of having money behave according to the industrial needs of society, investing in infrastructure, maintenance, improvement, things like that, that it had formerly been the norm. The new logic of post-1971 was it's going to be consumerism, right? Whatever we want to speculate on, whatever money you can get by essentially gambling and stealing, that's going to be legit. Um, we're going to de- deregulate the banking system to allow mergers and acquisitions and too big to fails to congeal as these supranational structures. And it was overseen by those who were plotting out the creation of Davos, the uh, the Trilateral Commission, all of these things, you know, all of these freaks that took over U.S. control of policy, um, you know, under David Rockefeller, Brzezinski, Kissinger, um, that called for the controlled disintegration of the economy. That's what Volcker even called for in 1979. Um, so... This is, in many ways, everything that they wanted kind of happened without too much fuss, especially after the the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then, you know, if you look at it, in in 2009, you had, you know, COP14, you had, or COP21, whatever it was, I'm losing track of them. I think it was COP14, which was- Yeah, it was COP14. Yeah, you you had a near blowout of the global financial system in 2007, 2008 that had only been dealt with by printing money and infusing- you know, hyperinflationary cash flows into the too big to fails, which never solved the problem. You had a, a, a weird test run at a pandemic, right? H1N1 was spreading. They were like having World Health Organization programs on like, how do you, how do you uh, use this as an opportunity to gain controls? And you had uh, under, under COP14 was this idea of getting everybody to sign on to the suicide pack of decarbonization. They needed Russia and China and India um, to be on board. And what happened? No one world government, no to to enforce, uh, you know, decarbonized quotas and all of this. Instead, you had China, India, a few African nations all lock themselves in a room <laughs> and not participate. They pulled themselves out of any participation, and the whole thing was a flop. So I think that that was supposed to succeed. It wasn't supposed to be a flop. They 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 wanted to have their their consolidated powers already online a long time ago. And the fact is, you just got various countries who realize that there's only one way forward if they're going to not sacrifice their ancient civilizations on this altar of, of Gaia and transhumanism, which is it manifested in the form of the, the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. It evolved in a creative way, integrating more and more Russia and the Eurasian Partnership and other countries, right? 140. Argentina is increasingly looking more and more like it, it's, it wants to move in that direction, too. So... Um, I think that the the oligarchy wanted to pull the plug on the system to control their disintegration, kind of like they did, you know, by getting every. They could do it for buildings to get an excuse to go to war. They could do it for a banking system, but everybody needs to be in the the, the building si- system, the building of the economic system for it to to work. And a lot of the, the countries just said, "We're not going to be in this building," <laughs> and that forced them to like do what they've been doing now in a weird way for the past six seven years of trying to subvert the the multipolar alliance and um i think having that all in as in the mind when you're analyzing what's going on now is is a very important context at least to keep a hold of as far as the details there's a lot of unknowns i didn't predict this either it's a surprise uh, uh caught me off well you know i was thinking about it the other day you know one of the things is you know you're in for a penny you're in for a pound it makes no sense for for them to go on ahead and just take Donbass and uh, and Lugansk, sorry, uh, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, and then hold it 
while the U.S. can still stage its hybrid war directly out of Kiev, directly out of Lviv, yeah. directly out of those zones that are that are close to it. It's, it will never solve the problem. The, the biggest mistake that the Ukrainian morons have done is they bombarded the, the and I think it was the 23rd, the morning of the 23rd, they bombarded the border to, uh, villages in the Donetsk area. They hit it with grad rockets. Uh, there was reports of anywhere between five to 10 trucks, each truck carrying 30 to 40 rounds of these nine foot long grad rockets that are 200 millimeters in diameter. I mean, they, the damage that was done from this was, um, it, that was it. And, and, and that was also the major impetus for the Russians to go. And now they're in, they put the UN peacekeepers there as a tripwire. The idiot Ukrainian military, these Nazis, these Nazis continue to do their shelling. And that was it. In for a penny and for a pound. They have to break the neck of, of, of the leadership, the Nazi regime that is in charge in Ukraine, we all know the Nazis control the military, the financial powers control, uh, the oligarchs control the financial power, and the U.S. provides the logistics and the arms. It's got to stop. And I think what what uh, Putin did is is masterful. In for a penny, in for a pound. Go all the way and just clean this up. Uh, and one thing that's important about to, to mention is that according to Western sources themselves, even the West admits that there are over 11,000 violations of the Minsk agreements oh, yeah. on that day in terms of that shelling. So it was shelling on a level that was really never seen before in the conflict after the initial sort of 2014-2015 phase. So just to be uh, clear, even the West is fully aware of it, and they're the ones who reported that information. Yep. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> the the um, if I may, the uh, issues with the the Minsk agreement uh, were were transparent uh, from the start. You could see if you if you read the language of the Minsk agreement, you can see that it calls for uh, a recognition of a degree of autonomy of the of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, and and but what this would mean uh, for the Ukrainian constitution is that that constitution would have to be uh, changed or, or rewritten, uh, which effectively is not simply something like a change of government, but actually a change of the structure of the state, because Ukraine is a unitary state. And now they have to have this sort of federal uh, consideration uh, for two regions. And, and the sort of fight uh, within, within Ukraine between uh, states or regions or oblasts on the one hand and, and the, the central authority, uh, supposedly in Kiev, but really in Washington, uh, has been the sort of ongoing thing. So you can look at these maps of, of the last round of elections going back 15 years, and you can see exactly the, the outline of, of the conflict today, or the civil war from 2014 that led to the situation today. You can see it all in this map of, of election results. Um, they're, they're very, very stark. You, you can see exactly uh, you know, one candidate and the people who voted 80, 90% for that one candidate that was very uh, pro-NATO uh, was the highest election support in the uh, Galician areas in the east where the Nazis come from. And you could see with the, with, uh, with the compromised candidates like uh, uh, Yanukovych, uh, who wanted balanced relations, the party of regions, 
uh, was his party. And you can see that it was that it was uh, Crimea, uh, uh, Kharkiv, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, that had like over 80 percent support for that party. And it's it's really very much like the United States right now with the red and blue states. It's really very interesting how uh, Noland Obama um, thought that uh, they could, uh, you know, pull a hat trick out of this. It's sort of unclear, although although I, I think uh, my colleagues have have given very good ideas uh, about why why we are seeing this. But it's amazing, truly amazing, to see. Uh, I, I will say that you know I did not expect this, and then when it did begin, I said, well, this will be contained to the areas of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. But to see it actually uh, where you have uh, control now, Russian forces control uh, Chernobyl. Uh, they control uh, the uh, air base, um, uh, the air base next to Kiev. Uh, they, they use the Black Sea. They used, I think they deployed forces either from the Black Sea or fired uh, from uh, Transnistria. And they hit targets outside in the in the Odessa Oblast. They uh, so they moved actually from uh, you know three out of the four cardinal directions into Ukraine, uh, all within five or six hours. And and I, I was stunned. Uh, I'd have to add that I was actually surprised too. I thought in the usual sort of. Um... Putin logic of the way the world works. Everything is very much about agreements and it's about deals. And especially they uh, essentially declared that uh, the independence of the two Donbass republics would be based on their original constitutional borders. So I thought that that's where that would end. So I myself am also uh, a little bit surprised. But what they're doing is probably the most logical step. And it's probably the best for peace because if they did just sort of go in and take the two republics, eventually there'd be some sort of counter-strike. There'd be the ability for Washington to give Kiev some kind of goodies to do something. Now, essentially, uh, as Putin himself joked, you want a decommunization, uh, you're going to get it. Uh, essentially, their country's really been sort of shattered, or fake country, is now going to be really shattered. And it's also important to note that uh, places like, especially Odessa, uh, would be experience horrible crackdowns. If Russia was to, say, ignore Odessa and not go in there, Odessa is known for being one of the most pro-Russian uh, districts of uh, that region, along with being one of the most Jewish. So when you get into this whole neo-Nazi power base, uh, there's a, a, a double reason to pick on people in Odessa. Furthermore, Odessa is right next to uh, Transnistria, like Joaquin mentioned. And uh, Transnistria could also be the next sort of uh, location to commit anti-Russian genocide. Uh, especially if the Russians didn't make their way over there because they've been sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place uh, being on the very eastern edge of Moldova. If you look at the map, there's a it's, I believe it's Chisinau in English, but it's Kishinev in Russian. So forgive me if I say that wrong, but uh, Chisinau, Kishinev to the east of that, there's that strip along the eastern border. Uh, and that has been sort of a breakaway republic ever since the early 90s. Uh, that's still technically, interestingly enough, um, I don't know how they're going to do this in modern Russia, uh, but they still consider themselves to be the legacy of the Soviet Union. So uh, that's kind of interesting. So Soviet Union's still around technically. But anyways, yeah, if they didn't take a Soviet Republic. Yeah, yeah. So if they didn't uh, uh, take Odessa, the opportunity for horrible acts of uh, barbarity like the kind we saw in the Donbass would probably happen to the people in Odessa 
Transnistria via the uh, uh, new Moldovan government, which is anti-Russian, uh, and probably in Mariupol, which you see there to the far east. Mariupol has always been on sort of the border of the conflict, uh, and it's going to be a troublesome area because it's become one of the most uh, landmined places in the world. Uh, it's also one of the places where you get the most resort uh, reports of uh, torture. So I think Mariupol is going to become a... Uh, story of nightmares once the real information is made public of what was going on there. Mm. Yeah, I think the the thing on a on a more I guess conceptual level <clears throat> since you guys are much more privy to the the ins and outs of the the geopolitical uh, tactics and dynamics on the ground um I was just thinking about the the value of this sort of thing has some parallels to what has happened here in Canada. Um, where you're dealing with shadow creatures, right? You're dealing with, with creatures who control by wielding the domain of lies and perception, but not reality. They kind of despise reality and they want you to live in their uh, virtual world of uh, make-believe. And it reminded me a little bit of the story that Shakespeare um, embedded or the lesson that he embedded within the, the story of uh, Othello, where you have the character of Iago, right? And, and who is Iago? Iago is this character in Venice, who's everyone trusts, honest Iago. Mm. And, you know, you have this, this very, very high potential leader, uh, this, this Moor um, who has won major battles for Venice, former slave, and he has a, a greatness within him, but he's also got a lot of weaknesses. And Iago has profiled this guy uh, and sees exactly where his weaknesses are and is able to then just orchestrate gossip, slander, innuendo to the point that he could get good people to self-destruct where Othello ends up killing his beloved wife uh, publicly and he undermines his, his best friend who goes and like kills somebody else and, and then self-destructs. And he's just doing this by keeping everybody in a state where they're not talking to each other. They're not discovering that they're all being played by honest Iago. And, uh, and Iago is just pure evil. He is representative of the, of the Venetian oligarchical technique of, of empire, of, of how do you get good people to fall into divide and conquer tactics and he's just showcasing exactly what this this is in its naked ugly. Anybody actually just got together and spoke dialogue, they would discover very quickly where the lies were coming from. If they confronted Iago directly, he would have broken down as he did at the end of play. But nobody does. Nobody talks to each other. Nobody confronts Iago. Even people who suspect it, they don't do it. And he gets away with it. But, you know, when you're dealing with shadow creatures, if you put the light on them, they they all of a sudden freak out, right? And and up until now, Putin has been sort of playing this game of the Byzantine game that he's been very good at. But at a certain point, the intention to destroy um, Russia, destroy the people of Canada, even that that is that intention is is nonstop. It's it's a religious like intention to reduce the world population, get rid of nation states, and uh, Putin knows this. His, the intelligentsia of Eurasia knows this. And at a certain point, you have to push back. You have to call out the evil thing for reason. Now force it into the surface where it has to then react, right? And it doesn't know how to do that because it thrives on mediocrity. The entire system of the empire makes itself dumber and worse year and year and year and year and year in to the point that you just look at Boris Johnson and their other, you know, Biden and their other, uh, you know, managers that they've put into positions of power to navigate this ship of fools. And you compare that to the quality of, of managers that they had, you know, a few decades back. It's totally lower quality on every level. Mm, mm, um, mm, mm. So they're just forcing that pus to the surface. And now, you know, I, I think the oligarchy is, is uncomfortable. They were uncomfortable when the population of Canada 
organized and said, no, we are not going to just take this and, and go into the slaughterhouse. We're going to, you know, you had this uh, push for de- basic rights of freedom and the government just couldn't maintain the veneer of a liberal democracy anymore. And you could just see very clearly this came through. Uh, it was uncomfortable. It was not a sign of weakness. And uh, no, sorry, it was not a sign of strength. So I see a lot of parallels to the what is being forced as a pus to the surface now, which is interesting. And on behalf of all Russian citizens, I'd like to thank everyone in Canada for uh, allowing this sort of high level of, uh, I don't know what to call it, legitimate distraction from what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, because, uh, you know, the media is trying to get uh, the West pumped up for some kind of... Uh, aggression towards russia but what's happening in canada with the trucker convoy it's so relevant it's so important it's something that really has touched the hearts of everyone in america and canada the whole um i don't know it's thank you guys for doing that i think it came at just the right time and i think to an extent the trucker convoy may actually have had an influence on this decision i'm serious Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of Westerners are starting to wake up to the fact that this whole entire concept of democracy is nothing but a euphemism, has no value. People see the ter- the tyranny and the gross overreach of power behind it. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, like Matt was just saying, I mean, uh, with this, uh, the events of uh, COVID have really revealed something that seemed pretty obvious to me, even as a teenager in the 90s, about the nature of of power and things and the uh, complete uh, disrespect for things like the uh, Bill of Rights and the Constitution and uh, uh, so on. Of course, in Canada, you guys have a uh, slightly uh, different system there, but that system is supposed to be generally in line with uh, the concept of the Bill of Rights and all that, but... uh, yeah, that's all been trampled on, uh, and these leaders don't care, especially Trudeau. And also, one thing I'm very happy about is uh, it would seem that generally everyone has finally had enough of certain talking points. Like, you know, in the past, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, if the media said, these people are protesting are racists, some people would jump on that bandwagon. Now, only the most hardcore, psychotic, liberal loons believe that. No one believes that. No, when they said that on TV, no one believed any of those truckers were Nazis. Just no one. It's just ridiculous. And thankfully, a lot of these talking points are getting played out. And when you and your uh, talking points are are horribly weak, your ideology crumbles. And remember, this is the ideology of the Great Reset that uh, uh, Matt and Joaquin were mentioning earlier. Let them crumble. Let this whole Great Reset anti-human bullshit crumble. So it's it's also a very good sign that ideologically they've sort of hit rock bottom. And uh, they don't seem to have an answer for anything. They're starting to uh, really talk to themselves in their own echo chamber. uh, Because I don't know, um, if we were to go back in time 20 or 30 years, I think a lot of the things that were being said by these sort of um, your Bill Gates, your Schwab kind of people uh, were a lot more attractive to the masses. And now that's that's over. Pretty much. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that it's sort of like a reverse Fabian society technique, you know, where uh, you just mm-hmm. wait and try not to confront your enemy head on by attrition. That's the Fabian society technique. And just mm-hmm. let them slowly decay um, and then and then slap them. That's what they've been operating on since really 1945, when the old school British imperial, you know, like crush the savages approach of Milner and Churchill proved to blow up in their faces too much they're like okay let's give this fabian society technique a better uh, we'll let that one lead all right we didn't work this time so they put you know 
people like John Maynard Keynes and other eugenicists up, up in front and let them become the grand strategists for a while and just, you know, think more transgenerationally, but never confront, never, never go head on, never go to the surface, always stay as far, you know, under the surface as possible. And as a byproduct, you know, they've created a condition where they can't sustain themselves. And, uh, and here we are now. And, uh, the, 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 other people, there have been other other parts of the world that have been thinking long term too. China's been thinking long term since the seventies, since the, the the gang of four were put in jail, and uh, and the four modernizations was put online as as something that was much longer term than Henry Kissinger wanted to believe, and they they have been playing a certain very sophisticated game. They've had their own fights with their own deep state. Russia's its own fights with its own deep state. You know, I'm getting people who are messaging me saying, "Oh, it's all part of the World Economic Forum." agenda what putin is doing is playing right into it no i'm sorry you're just ignoring <laughs> all of the context of history you're just ignoring it all oh, sorry matt I'll, I'll let you continue yeah. but what putin revealed in his 90 minute sort of um preface to the declaration yeah. that they were going to declare the dnr and lnr to be independent he mentioned yeah. that in the 90s he and russia were essentially going to tell or tell clinton okay we give up we're yours we're going to be part of nato break us up we surrender and they didn't take them yeah. That now that mentality that is an action of Russia submitting to some sort of new world order type of planning. Okay, sorry, Matt. I just wanted to. You know, no, no, that's perfect. Your turn. That's exactly it. Now, Matt, that's the point, yeah. right? They've been planning this ahead, and now you actually have a coherent, well thought through uh, reaction. Now, finally, where Russia, China have empowered themselves sufficiently to be in a position now to challenge this thing that they weren't in that position a decade ago, twenty years ago. Um, if, you know, if the World Economic Forum agenda was still determining uh, Russian policy, they would have just continued with the Yeltsin uh, program of allowing mass privatizations, oligarchic controls and NATO encroachment with no buffer bluster. Um, I think I just made that up. That's not even the term. But they would have just been okay with that. And instead, what we've had is the opposite. Um, I unfortunately have to go. I'm just at the time and I've got to. An interview in two minutes. So, guys, I wish I could finish that thought, but I'm over exceeded my my timeline timeline. No here. problem, so, Matthew. Thank you, thank so you for being on. All right, uh, gentlemen, uh, Joaquin, Alex, or Tim. Uh, I think most of Americans, most Westerners, don't understand what exactly was happening in the Donbas region in Ukraine. We're only now. It's kind of like World War II. Nobody knew of the atrocities of the Nazis until the war was coming to an end. Nobody knew about about uh, uh, the concentration camps until the war was coming to an end. What, what, what was happening for the audience so they can understand? What was really going on in that region, guys? Oh, uh, it looks like that might be uh, my job to take this one. Now, one of the things is, like I mentioned about the situation in Mariupol, uh, in the very, very southeast. <laughs> Excuse me. Again, for the audience, I've been a little sick, so forgive my strange-sounding voice. Um, there's been a lot of reports of torture, uh, but one thing that doesn't need a report, uh, yeah, in the very southeast of Mariupol, right there, that that, when they reveal with, like, the documents, if they're able to get them, that, again, so I've seen some video of Ukrainian soldiers burning documents and big bonfires. Uh, of course, videos that come from telephones with no explanation, no context, we can't just jump on board and believe them. However... Under what other circumstances would a lot of people in those uniforms be burning stuff? I don't know. Maybe it's a fake thing done in Moscow. Who knows? But anyways, there's videos of that. 
So anyways, uh, that's going to be the real sort of torture, uh, <laughs> what is revealed the torture center. And one of the other things, too, is uh, just little things that have been caught on video is the Ukrainian forces, the private battalions, not so much the normal army, but the private battalions would force the locals to, when their uh, forces would come through, to leave their houses and kneel in the mud before them as they would go through their village as an act of submission. Uh, that's probably the very least of the atrocities, but the atrocity list is going to keep going. Furthermore, they've been shelling civilians that are theoretically, you know, Zelensky tries to say from one side of his mouth that this is their countrymen. Well, they said they've been shelling the Donbass uh, for, gosh, now eight years on and off. And uh, yeah, that's that's it. Uh, we're at uh, between 14 and 16,000 uh, civilians uh, dead in this Donbass conflict. Uh, over this uh, process here. So so that's it. That's essentially what's there. But I think the real reality of what's happening is going to be revealed soon. And one of the other things that the Russians are talking about is they want to have a set of essentially the Nuremberg trials again. So they promised the normal Ukrainian soldiers surrender. We don't care. Go home. Who cares? You're free. Uh, even for the private battalions, the grunts, you're free. Now, the organizers of the private battalions and some of the oligarchs in Kiev, uh, they actually want to put on trial for what's happened over the uh, last eight years. And uh, we'll see how that goes or what it'll look like. But essentially, the standards set down by Nuremberg, that idiots at the bottom are not to be punished for their actions during war. Uh, that policy from World War II is going to go through uh, into the future. Right. I got... Um... If I may. Yeah, we have uh, another thing is when you had in uh, the uh, Donetsk and Lugansk in the, in the regions uh, that had broken away, you had uh, an, an abdication by the Kiev uh, central government of basic human resources, of, of uh, power, water, electricity, uh, human uh, uh, resources. You have uh, pensions. You have different uh, the social net uh these things have have been uh, effectively financed by the russian federation for the past six seven eight years and and this is uh you know a parallel sort of in, in in the ethics at least of it all would be let's say you've you own something but you've abandoned it and now you have squatters there for for almost a decade and they've been paying the taxes on it and they've been paying they've been doing the upkeep and they've actually improved uh, the property, and then they have a claim to that, right? It's like usufructus and so forth, squatters' rights. And and what has happened is that, it's, or almost foolishly and arrogantly, is the Ukrainian uh, Kievan government, for for whatever reason, this junta uh, decided to 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 basically let it go. And and so you can't have a, a people uh, without these this basic access to humanitarian or or human services. Uh, and, and basic utilities. So when a government says you're cut off and they do it for punitive reasons, these are purely political reasons, uh, this is an invitation uh, for an adjacent power uh, or internal power to claim independence or sovereignty and for them to then say, this is who can help us because you can't. Uh, mm -hmm. So in that whole process, what, what you find when you look deeply at the, the conversations that people like Lavrov or Putin have had with their with their their colleagues, their their peers, their equivalents in in Germany or or in France, etc., is you don't find arguments. You, you don't find 
when, when these points are raised, you find that the foreign ministers of these other European countries uh, who are not making a show for the cameras, right, who are not making a show for, for some uh, newspaper editor, they agree with all of those points. And, and likewise, when you talk about the security reasons that uh, Russia went in uh, into Ukraine, not, not just the, the recognized breakaway republics of, of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, People's Republics, but when you actually look at the justification for going into Ukraine, right, uh, this, was, this was identical to what we saw in uh, the conflict in Georgia, where at the time the, uh, the U.S. ambassador was questioning Putin at, at the Valdai Discussion Club, why in Georgia did they not just fight in the areas of conflict, but why did they go deeper into Georgia? And that's because the attacks and the, and the infrastructure and the, was coming from deeper into Georgia. And he explained this is basic military security strategy. And the OSCE, which is a sort of umbrella security organization towards peace, nice in theory, coming out of the 1975 Helsinki Final Act, uh, many thought that this would replace NATO after the end of the USSR. And in fact, that promise was put out to people like Gorbachev and then Yeltsin that the OSCE could, could be shifted to replace something like NATO so that you have everyone cooperating in, in, a, in a general security apparatus. Uh, but that didn't happen. So when you look at these, 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 these foundation, the foundation of Helsinki that led to the OSCE from the Blue Book, to the, which laid out the, the pathway towards Helsinki, Final Act in 1975, you, you find in there that the justification for use of force is when a, it can be another country does something critical, which ipso facto reduces your own security status. OK, and so in other words, any country is free to, let's say, purchase a weapons system or join an alliance. And, and that's fine. But when doing so uh, creates uh, not, not an indirect threat, but a direct through the mechanisms of that. Right. Not not an abstract threat, not an ideological threat, not a threat across the world somewhere uh, like, say, the U.S. and Vietnam, not like a domino theory threat or something like that, but a direct threat like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Then there if diplomacy fails. You have the right within the framework of the OSCE to go in. These were the discussions that Putin had with Macron, who's now serving as the head of the EU, but also representing uh, France in many ways in that same discussion. This is why you had a uh, former uh, chancellor. This is why, you know, Schroeder, Schroeder was saying even when, uh, seven or eight years ago that Russians' actions in the Donbass were probably legitimate. Legitimate, not illegitimate, legitimate. So I think that they had this uh, wrapped up. I think they firmed up uh, the framework of OSCE. I think it was already known that that NATO could not act in a unified way. I mean, you can't get NATO to work together. Just look at Turkey and Greece. Just just look at NATO's inability to do really anything right now uh, for some time. So I, I you know, in, in looking at, at what, what the colleagues on the panel have been saying, it just becomes increasingly clear to me now that um, that not only was um, this this uh, incursion into Ukraine justifiable under the agreements that exist and international law, uh, whether you're talking about Geneva Convention or Helsinki, uh, it was also the time to do it and necessary. And um, I, I just I was surprised by it, though. But when you think about it, it actually makes sense. Very well, Alex, would you like to uh, add anything to that? 
I think that the the whole thing got cooked up pre prior to 2014 because the West put the Ukraine in front of a in front of an exclusive choice of accession with the European Union and exclusive of its relationship with Russia. So Russia was saying, okay, you know, you can you can you can go ahead and um sign these cooperation deals with Russia and with with Europe and the West but you know not also keep the relationship between Russia and Ukraine and that the West introduced the rigid choice either or either you're with us or you're with them and from there came and I was I was just hoping if one of it, because my my recollection of that whole mess is a little bit foggy by now but that's where that's where ukraine was put to a to a fork in the road and um and this is where the the maidan revolution was 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 uh, emerged from and the deposition of uh, of yanukovych and the uh, and the new government that was put in so it was entirely the west's doing 100%. Tim. Yes. Where do you think things are going to go from here? And then I'll ask the same um, question to all three of you guys for your uh, synopsis. Okay. Well, there's always the chance that America might uh, change its mind and send its forces in. There's a small percentage chance of that. But as we just saw from that uh, tweet from Zero Hedge, by the way, thanks guys at Zero Hedge. You've shared a lot of my articles and made my life better. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, I think it's very unlikely at this point. What I think is going to happen is Russia is going to take everything to the east of the Dnieper uh, River and yep. uh, essentially along the Black Sea border up to Transnistria. Transnistria is probably going to go over. And what we're going to get is we're probably going to get uh, something that looks like the Cold War, where we're going to set up probably some sort of iron border. And that iron border is going to be more than uh, just a physical border between the rest of uh, Ukraine uh, and the West. Uh, it's going to be something of an intellectual nature. There's already been threats to completely shut down RT and various other uh, information sources from Russia. So I think we're also going to get into an informational iron curtain, not just a physical one. It's going to become very different, difficult for people to travel between the East and the West, not impossible, but probably very difficult. And uh, I think we're going to go back to that sort of weird uh, model, but uh, that's definitely better than the path to a one world, uh, new world order uh, that Matt was describing so eloquently earlier in this program. That's yes, all I got, um, Bibi. Yes, uh, I think <clears throat> that the the uh, Kiev junta can be defeated politically. Uh, now, if, if if this process that we're in right now, the demilitarization process, um, on on, a, on on an ontological level, uh, on the question of being, on a deeply philosophical level, on a on a metapolitical level. The uh, the extremists, uh, the Banderists, uh, the neo Nazis uh, in in Ukraine, who are very much like like a European ISIS, if you will, uh, they they uh, would be opposed to the Great Reset, and I think that there is a way in to subvert or redirect, uh, reeducate, and realign those energies. 
I'm not saying to feed into their historical revisionism with World War II, but, but on the practical issues confronting them as Galician identity Ukrainians today, uh, there, there's, a way, there's a way forward, uh, at least in the future, in the near future. Because, look, uh, Ukraine is, is, is not going, no one, no one in Ukraine really likes uh, their own oligarchs. When, when, if you really dug into Pravi sector uh, propaganda uh, from the right sector, uh, they were, they thought, they, they thought that they were going to be sort of like a free corps unit that would prove their valor in the battlefield against Russia, but then also, but from there springboard to overthrowing their own oligarchs, their own corrupt oligarchs. So they had a sort of anti-oligarchical worldview to the extent that you could call this bastard ideology a worldview, but, you know, be that as it may, that's what they believed and they still believe. And, and knowing now that they've been played and, and seeing the, the descent from Poroshenko and then into Zelensky, seeing, and because they know their own country and they, they know who the oligarchs are, uh, you know, we, we can look and we can see that it's very, very strange that you had Akhmatov, you know, get uh, sort of vacillate at the start, but by the end of 2014 or the middle of 2015, rather, he was financing his own uh, rebel brigade to protect his assets in, in, uh, in the east of the country. But, but then, uh, and he was against Poroshenko, but then he gets behind. Uh, he gets behind prominently behind uh, uh, Zelensky's campaign, right? So that's very interesting to me, and it's very interesting that it was Akhmatov was Paul Manafort's main guy in the Ukraine, uh, connected to that uh, U.S. interest in the Ukraine, which the Obama and Nolan foreign policy completely flipped over. So you can see, you know, the relationship between Paul Manafort, General Flynn, uh, Trump, and you can see this this fight over over Ukraine. Like there's some there's some truth to the Russia collusion hoax. It just just that Trump didn't break any laws. <laughs> but but the point is that clearly there was a, a conflict over: Are we going to get fucking planet stupid with Ukraine, or are we going to uh, see where this? Yanukovych thing can go. Instead, they decided to go planet stupid. They went the color revolution. It was a short-term victory, and that's the problem with these with these careerists uh, and these and this corporate culture, where you can have a short-term victory, and then when the stock value plummets, you can just resign as CEO, take your departure package, and then go work somewhere else. And that's the problem in American corporate culture. And there's no accountability if you lose it, and and they just think in the short term. So I want Alex to, to get a word in before he jumps, if he does, if he wants to yeah, go, go for it, Alex. I got cut off for a moment, but uh, unfortunately I have to jump. Uh, gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure. I think that uh, the history that we are about to experience is going to be um, world changing. Um, I, you know, I can't, I can't help uh, having 
having doubts about what's going on now, but uh, a great deal of faith uh, in the process uh, going long term. I think that the the dark forces in the West are crumbling. I think that the multipolar world order will turn out a lot better for humanity. And so I, you know, like I really want to end it on an, on an optimistic note. I think we're, we're going to be having uh, crises in the short term, energy crises, economic crises. But I think that that's just the old systems crumbling. And as the yeah. Confucian saying goes, uh, you know, the when the when the great big tree falls, it falls with great noise and destructions. But seeds they grow without any noise. Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced that what we're seeing now is these great big trees, the old structures of the old world crumbling. It's mesmerizing to watch. It's it's uh, it's scary. It's frightening. But the the hundreds of millions of seeds, which is us that are growing, that are observing this and uh, that are that are coalescing in some way that's not discernible to us yet are turning into something awesome. And so, you know, uh, let's keep talking. I think the most important thing that we can do is to pay attention, to discern the truth and to speak the truth. And uh, I think that the future will be bright. So anyway... 100%. That's all. That's all for me, gents. A great pleasure to connect with you. Uh, greetings to all the viewers and listeners, and I look forward to connecting again. Absolutely, Alex. Thank you so much, man. We'll be reaching out to you very soon. Thank you. Take care. Closing com- closing comments. Uh, Joaquin, go oh. for it, and then Tim, you can close this out, brother. All right. Yeah. Um, thanks, Alex. Uh, I would I would like to say that you know Ukraine. Uh, has been the biggest victim in all of this. Yes. Um, and it's easy to forget. Uh, I think that war is hell. Uh, war is a racket. And Ukrainians have been played. There's been economic games and psychological operations played on them. And, and even in, in their own, you know, distorted way, especially in, in the West of the country, uh, the way that they have tried to resist resist this has also been planned uh, through Operation uh, Gladio B, through these uh, USAID structures to, to create banderism as, as a solution, as, as an alternative to uh, the decadence of, of, of modernity and, and the liberal order. So, so I can see uh, how that appealed to them. And, and I think that when, when, when Ukrainians in general... Uh, everyday people who have to work for a living and, and they have to pay energy bills and, and next winter will be very cold. And when they see that, that Europe is going, has gone, has joined this bizarre cult of, of, of carbon zero emissions and this bizarre cult of, of Greta Thunberg and, and no one can get on an airplane except for us and, and nobody can have nice things except for us. And everybody has to live in a, in a 15 square meter apartment, except for us. I think when Ukrainians see that the future that the IMF has in mind for all of Europe is identical to the hell that Ukrainians have been living in for the past 10 years, I think that they will see that having uh, 10 cents or 15 cents a liter uh, gasoline and, and having relatively cheap home heating 
and jobs is a much better alternative to the science fiction dystopic horror show of, of the World Economic Forum and the IMF. Very well said. Tim, go ahead, brother. Well, I guess then to maybe add one last thing to what Joaquin said about um, the whole Great Reset uh, situation is that as we enter a multipolar world, um, one of the best things about it is that there will never be one way of doing things. There's always going to be a few different options about how to do things. And you can never create this uh, horrific global nightmare world that Joaquin does a much better job of describing than I do. When people who are exposed to modern information can see that on the other side of the line, things are much different. And uh, that's going to be the great uh, guarantor. I always say that word very strangely. Uh, the, per- the thing that does the guaranteeing, guarantor of uh, a future that is human and uh, not uh, monstrous. Absolutely. Very well said. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this whole entire thing. This is the Suez moment for the unipolar world. This is the end. This is where the world sees that they are powerless. They can do nothing but barely even pick on third world countries and even try to hold that together is feeble. It reminds me of the quote from Genghis Khan when I look at Russia sweeping through and wiping out these Nazis, these Nazis, Spavoda, Azov, Bandera groups that are in Ukraine. I, 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 that quote from Genghis Khan is so appropriate and it says i am the punishment of god if you had not committed such great sins god would not have sent a punishment like me upon you mm-hmm. and that's the way i see it over there that's happening in ukraine this monstrosity this this disgusting garbage that the west has been running is finally breaking apart and i think many many countries around the world are finally starting to see it mm-hmm. I want to thank both of you guys for coming on board we're going to do this again joaquin i got to get you back on it's been so busy with uh, Rogue and all this crazy stuff. I mean, we're going to be officially back on YouTube March 28th. That's when they get us out of the penalty box. So uh, March 28th, I'd like to have you back uh, that week. Uh, Joaquin, if you can come back and join us, that'll be awesome. Tim as well. Uh, We'll be all firing on all cylinders. Gentlemen, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, the audience. The replay of this broadcast will be on roguenews.com. This is being also broadcast on Twitch, DLive. It will also be on Rumble, multiple other broadcasts. This is going to go out to tens of thousands of people globally so uh thank you all for joining in again and have a great rest of your day